Hey, this is Sean Tepper, the host of Payback Time, an approachable and transparent podcast in building businesses, increasing wealth, and achieving financial freedom. I'd like to bring on guests to hear authentic stories while giving you actionable takeaways you can use today. Let's go. Are you looking to create a SaaS business? This is a great episode that talks about an enterprise SaaS, specifically in the data analytics space. We talk about how long it took, how many years it took to get to a million ARR. We also talk about what kind of revenues they're on track to generate this year, which is about 16 million. They have about 30 employees and the sales cycles are quite interesting. And we actually talk about how do you, if you're somebody who's looking to build a SaaS, how do you onboard enterprise clients and how do you structure the contracts? That can be a little tricky if you've never worked in this space, but we break it down in this episode. All right, let's get into it. Please welcome Jonathan Chin. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean. Great to be here and thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So why don't you kick us off and tell us about your background? Yeah, so my name is Jonathan Chin. I'm the co-founder here, uh, Data as a Service Company called Factius. And uh, my current role right now is I run the growth and data strategy here. Although being a co-founder, I've worn many hats uh, through our history from everything to product to sales to taking out the trash. (laughs) So uh, I've done kind of everything from a spectrum perspective as far as a technology company and building one up. Let's see. Oh, I... I went to, I, I formally, I went to school uh, at UC Santa Barbara down in California. I'm originally a Californian. I live now in Portland, Oregon. I studied business economics and accounting, believe it or not. Um, so yeah, that's where I started my career as a CP, at a CPA firm and as a tax accountant before getting here. Gotcha. Okay. So let's talk about the transition point. This seems to be a hard point in people's careers is, hey, I'm working a full-time job, corporate America, let's say. Uh, and I want to create a business and make that jump. So were you bootstrapping this new business a little bit, or did you raise funds to go all in? How how did that work? It was definitely bootstrapped. Um, I did kind of have an unconventional, I'd say, path into entrepreneurship, and I'd say very lucky and fortunate. Um, I My co-founder, uh, a guy called Dan Afrasiabi, he's on our board now. Um, he was uh, the co- He was the founding CEO, and he was an experienced entrepreneur that um, we met through mutual friends and uh, took me under his wing as kind of the number two. And when we say bootstrapped, uh, we were definitely uh, using some of his personal funds to really get the company started before. So I had a really fortunate opportunity to learn entrepreneurship from someone that was experienced. And um, But transitioning from bootstrap to actually raising money became kind of a pretty fast learning process and experience. Sure. How long did you bootstrap the company before jumping in? Um, so I'd say we f- took our first angel money before actually raising a real round, um, probably a year, year and a half after. Um, we were kind of solidifying a quote unquote, you know, a vision sure. and an idea um, before we went out to friendlies. And we did eventually convince a handful of angel investors to kind of come in. So in a way, it was still bootstrapped, but just with other people's money at that point. Sure. Um, before raising an actual round of uh, funding. So a year and a half in, you bootstrapped. Were you able to, uh, or here's a question for you. How, how long did it take to get your first client? That's a great question. Um, so originally, uh, we were in build mode for probably six to eight months when we first started the company with you know no customers, building tech. Um, and what we built was an application that analyzed 
consumer transaction data. So think like credit cards and debit cards. And every time you swipe, we'd see what you see on your bank account. Um, and the idea was originally, this is very, very long ago, about 10, 12 years ago. It, the idea was you'd link your bank account so we could get access to your transactions. And then we would give you reward points for spending at certain places. And essentially those reward points you could use and redeem for uh, certain things like a chance to win a new car or like a new TV or something like that. And so we had to build that entire application. It took, like I said, probably eight months before we even launched from a marketing perspective uh, to get it in a place where it could take our first customers. Um, so that was that was quite a journey. Um, and it was it was it was fun. It was really fun, but it was always that when you click the on button and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, will anyone actually sign up and give us their data and think this is cool? That was like really nervous. <laughs> yeah, we're we're going to get into that, but before we get into the weeds, let's just talk about the name of the business here. Is is it Factius? Yeah, Factius. So Got Fact it. and then EUS Factius. And this is just at a high level. I'll, I'll try to give a shot in the dark here, and then you can kind of correct me if I'm wrong. But this is a data as a service. Is this an enterprise play or a small and mid-sized business play? It's right now an enterprise play. Okay. So all of our customers are large enterprises or pretty large, medium-sized enterprises. We think from a value perspective, our data has a down-market opportunity. Uh, what we're not struggling with but debating internally is always... Do we do that ourselves or do we find a partner to help us kind of get to that? We call it the long tail, but kind of the SMB market where I I still think there's a huge play for data and more intelligence there and running businesses more efficiently with the type of data we have. But it's tough. There's a lot of businesses out there. That's a lot of salespeople, a lot of account management people, a lot of marketing um, and also product market fit. Like there's a lot of different sub segments and niches that you need to kind of productize for. Sure. Just a pause here. I like to kind of talk to the audience a little bit. So with Jonathan's company, he's got a B2B enterprise SaaS play. Um, we'll get into the numbers here in a little bit, but an enterprise play can be very lucrative for one customer, but acquiring one customer, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of meetings. It's a lot of presentations. It can be, take three, six, nine, sometimes 12 months to secure a customer. Whereas with like Ticker, I consider that a B2C SaaS. We call it a low-touch SaaS, kind of like a Netflix. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of runway there. It's like we let people in, 14-day free trial, no credit card. And if you like it, great, mm-hmm. and credit card. And if you don't, you can, you know. Self-serve, right? Yeah, it, yeah it, that's it, exactly. totally a dream. It's, that's a dream. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. I love the model, but I have a lot of respect for enterprise SaaS. So let's get into mm-hmm. that a little bit. First, or let's start with the problem that you solve. You collect, sounds like financial data for enterprises, but what does it do? What pain does it remove for the customer? Okay, so yeah, we, so at a high level, we we partner with what we call banks and processors in the industry to safely monetize consumer transaction data. Um, so from a privacy perspective and a legal and data rights perspective, uh, we're compliant with everything from GLBA, GDPR, CCPA, everything. And we help them extract data safely so that we can help productize it. What we do from the product perspective is we have over 100 million debit and credit cards in the U.S. So we have a very good pulse on consumer spending and consumer behavior in the U.S. And that that intelligence in and of itself is the value prop, the data and what you can extract from the data. Where I think we do try to call ourselves a DAS company, a data as a service company, where data companies are a little different than SaaS companies is 
the value prop in a SaaS or software company is well-defined within the software itself. So you build it, it, go, it takes some value or makes something easier, makes something faster, makes something cheaper. And like your business, it's people either want it or they don't. And they pay for it or they don't because, or they think it's worth whatever the monthly or annual charges are. Um, where data becomes a little different is data is a lot more like, I call it like clay. And SaaS is like a hammer. A hammer hits a nail or creates force when you swing it. Clay can be molded into many different value props. So some of our customers are hedge funds and investors, active retail or stock traders. Mm -hmm. um, they use our data to try to forecast like revenue for like Target or Walmart before earnings announcements. It's a value proposition. Our data definitely can do that. And most of our revenue right now comes from that. Um, mm. However, we are trying to get into the retail market. So someone like Starbucks, they could use exactly the same data that we give to a hedge fund, but they'll use it to try to figure out which independent coffee brands in each city or region are encroaching and taking Starbucks customers away. So that's where data as a service is a really, it's really interesting and exciting, but it also does become kind of, it's, it's hard. Like you have to help educate your customer. And the idea though, is it's very leverageable. The same data set can solve so many different use cases. Theoretically, our yes. company should be able to make a ton of money, be worth a lot. That's the goal and the idea. <laughs> I like that analogy of, you know, a data company being clay, because you're right, one customer may use it for this use case, and another company or customer may use it for something entirely different. Bingo. So, right? So I assume, you know, you you onboard a customer, and you probably have like an account team that kind of works with that customer to kind of like, okay, what do you want your dashboard to look like? Or what are you looking for? Do, is that true? You have a team working with each customer? It's sort of. We have essentially yeah, our account slash product team. And really it lives in product because that's our, uh, those are the, our experts on the data itself mm -hmm. and what it can and can't do and how you can and can't use it. Um, and when I say you can and can't, it's because data does have limitations at some point. When right. you only have US data, you have nothing really on Canada. You know, so there's some, there are natural limitations to data itself. But you know, to be honest, a lot of that actually comes pre-customer, um, which is to your point on enterprise sales, you're investing a lot in each sale. But it is a bit of like the horse leading the horse to water. Um, yeah. People are interested in data. Like Starbucks, for example, was a customer at one point um, and we're trying to win them back. But uh, when we sold them as uh, clients, there was a lot of education on what can you use this data for and almost helping them build a business case internally to justify paying us for the data itself, which did work. But it is a pretty, cons I call it a consultative sale. And a lot of what we you, you described happens actually up front before the sale. And then the idea, though, is you we can propagate value throughout. Once we get the foot in the door, we can open up more opportunities. Because like, like I said, in Starbucks, they have a very large company. They have a marketing team, a, a real estate team to try to find new locations. Where should they open the new one? Uh, competitive analysis or intelligence team. There's so many different teams that could use the data. And opening up more use cases would help us grow the account. And that's kind of a land and expand strategy for the data. Gotcha. So in, in summary, just to summarize your business model, what you do is you help companies become more efficient at marketing, sales, maybe even operations. Is that a correct yeah. statement? Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nice. Those nice. are the major touch points for at least retail. Um, the other big one would just also just be, I mean, efficient's a good word. Mm -hmm. Understand their competition at a much grand, more granular That's level beyond huge. service. Yeah.
That's huge. That's awesome. All right, let's get into some of the numbers here. We're talking about sales a little bit. Sales cycle. How long, on average, does it take to onboard a customer? Mm, that, that that that's the question I'll answer, but I hate the answer. Um, <laughs> honestly, we're probably three to six months is probably a good number. Um, oh, that's in some extent longer than that. I'd say that definitely is correlated with the dollar amounts, meaning. The higher dollar amounts are a lot closer to six months and the smaller dollar amounts are closer to three months. Nothing's fast. Our record was 28 days as the shortest, which was good, but also probably an outlier right now. I'm trying to get more of those in, but that there and there have been definitely longer ones. Welcome to the world of enterprise sales. It is not a glamorous, <laughs> right? It is not a, a glamorous process. Three to six months isn't too bad because I've talked to other people that we're talking six to nine months, 12 months. It's it just call after call. And we've had you know, a few of those. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh-huh. You, t- you take a customer out to dinner and uh, what are you thinking? Mm-hmm. You're ready to move forward. Well, not quite. You know, we're thinking about, you know, it's that conversation mm-hmm. over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll tell you the thing that hurts us a lot. At some point, you just can't stress about things out of your control. Yeah. Like I said, a lot of our revenue today comes from the investor market, from like he- think hedge funds, mutual funds, and uh, essentially retail investors. When things like a new war breaks out, all of a sudden everything's on pause. The markets, totally. essentially what data can tell you about how the stocks are going to do are kind of not correlated. Data doesn't matter at that point. There's all these other global factors happening, or let's say a mm-hmm. pandemic where things lock down. Everything just gets put on pause all of a sudden. And like I said, we can stress about it, but there's also literally nothing we can do at that point other than write a letter to the board. Exactly. Yeah. Geopolitical events. It's, it's unfortunate. Um, I actually just released a YouTube video or it soon will be released as of the recording Mm -hmm. of this video talking about some of these events can be really short, like an impact to the stock market and some can be fairly long. And in your case, in Mm -hmm. the sales cycle, it's the same thing. It's like, can be a blip on the radar or it's like, all right, here we sit for the next few months. We're going to have to deal with this in pause mode. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's always weird. Like, I mean, you run your own company. It's, it's hard because no one's saying no. They're just saying, hey, not right now. Yeah. So forecasting your own business becomes just very hard and difficult. But at the same time, we have no control over these types of things. They just yeah. seem to be happening more frequently these days. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's no kidding around the globe. Interesting time to live. All right. Let's get into the numbers a little more. I want to talk about sure. average contract size and then revenues of your company. Um, can you give us what is the range on the low end to the high end, your average contract size? So we break our market up, kind of matching the data products that we build. Um, I won't, we don't have that many, so it's not a lot, but it's it's good to understand um, in the data world, the top end of the market, we call them, I call them the high data acumen enterprises. They've invested a lot of people, money, and technology uh, efforts into building a very robust internal data practice. And those guys really like to buy what we call our we call it row-level data, but really just think of it as a stream of data where they're doing all the data science and analysis on their end because they've essentially hired and invested in people and technology to do that. And we're really just supplying the raw materials, the data itself. Um, those contracts actually, ironically, because we do less, we actually charge more for because there's more you can get, there's more value. Um, and those average probably in the low seven figures. So high six-figure per year per annums um, yep. deals where that's, like I said, these are large enterprises that have really invested in kind of building that team. And that's a very small segment of the market, but it does exist. Kind of the meat of the market 
where we actually do a lot of the data science and we call it we the word we use is paneling but really it just it means we select kind of the best card holders that we have that are using it as you guys maybe you guys know but maybe you don't but the average american has four credit and debit cards in their wallet i think i have maybe six most of us have more than one one's the primary or maybe two are the primary and the others are kind of just you have accounts and they have cards so we filter out just kind of the top of wallet cards and make a really nice data panel where it's very what we call very representative of us spending and those contracts probably range in the few hundred thousand per year range it's for people it's for companies that the heavy lifting that we're, we're doing the heavy lifting they're really just extracting insight from okay now i want to do exactly what you're saying understand my customer better understand my competition better understand maybe geo uh spending behaviors better those type of things they can extract that very easily out of this product um we don't yet have a product down market where it's kind of like i said sub six figures we think there is an appetite in the market there and it's more about what is the right product what is the right fit and uh how do you approach that market but we do think opportunistically that's a very green field and do you do any kind of trial period with your customers like we can set up the dashboard let you play with it for 30 60 90 days or whatever then after that we enter into the contract yeah that's um it, and we 100% do in the data industry, it's really interesting. Um, it's essentially become, I think, kind of part of the sales process, what we call, uh, people. some people call it a backtest, some people call it a trial period, where historical data, so think like a data that's lag, maybe I have data every day, so I have yesterday's data today, um, so very recent data, but usually for a trial, we'll give them data that's three, six, maybe even a year old, wow. and really what people are doing, and trial periods last between 45 to 90 days. What our clients or prospects are doing are really, they're just trying to match up. We tell them our data is good and representative spending. Um, So like hedge funds, what they would do is they'll take a look at the data and say, if I had this data last year, how might my trading have been different? And would that have worked out positively for me? Um, A retailer might say, like Starbucks, for example, they'll take the trial period and say, your data says that Bills and blue bottle coffee are encroaching on our market in California. I want to see, am I losing? They can look at their own first party data to see, oh, I am like kind of my, my California numbers dipped a little bit. Maybe that is the answer and kind of corroborate our data yep. with their internal knowledge to kind of essentially just if our data was completely wrong, they'd be like, I don't think this is good. Right. They, they can't trust it. Right. So there's that trust period which is what the trials meant for. Less like SaaS where you're trying to figure out, do I like this software? Does it work? This is a little bit more of a, can I trust what I'm looking at? Because right. obviously, Factius, myself, we're going to tell you it's great. And everyone <laughs> should be testing it. So they're, they're in a way testing to make sure what we say is true within the data itself. Which, by the way, sorry, I didn't mean to tangent, but it's a really, it's kind of an interesting thing when we talk about, uh, when we train our internal staff on the product and the sales team, on a sales cycle, I always tell people, like, listen, you don't need to trick anyone into buying data. Like, what we have in our, product documents are what they are. And they're all going to see the data. So if our data is weak in like the Midwest region, because we just don't have a lot of cards, just tell them that. Because at some point, they're going to see the data and they're going to realize that. And you can't, we can't fabricate data all of a sudden manifest Midwest region, another million cardholders. Mm -hmm. So it's going to come up and you just need to be transparent because they will see it. (laughs) So it it becomes kind of interesting because they're going to see all the warts and scars in the data that are missing and gaps that, so we just be upfront about it. 
However, sure. the other side of the coin is there is no perfect data set. No, like Visa and MasterCard might be kind of the most comprehensive in our world. They do not sell data at the level that we sell it. So there's no such thing as perfect. If someone wants right. perfect, like we don't need to measure ourselves against that, I guess is what I tell my team. Sure, sure. No, that's well put with data. You're right. You can't. You can't put a what? What is this saying? It's, <laughs> lipstick on a, uh, lipstick, you can't put the on lipstick a pig. On the pig. I was going to yeah. say that's exactly what. If you want bacon, we've got it. Right. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you in the process? I assume a part of the cell might be maybe the presentation of the graphs, like the interface. Like if if you can efficiently get to the data, speed I'm sure is a factor, and how it's presented I'm sure that's another factor as well. Is that true? Absolutely. Um, I'd say that's where. DAS companies, just like any company in tech, um, you need to put a little sizzle in yes. your product. And the way you present data is, it, it's actually, it's so important because not everyone's data acumen is that high. Not everyone actually can read graphs that well. And providing, like you said, dashboards or just presentations with relevant graphs and graphical interfaces are really good. The other thing we've learned is, um, in each industry, the terminology is different, and it's really important to get the terminology right because then when they look at the graph, they're seeing what you're trying to show them. And from the data company perspective, it's hard. I, I remember one of the first conferences, the National Retail NRF conference, January and every January, it's the biggest retail conference in the U.S. in New York. I would go around telling prospects like, oh, we, we, have, car, we have card data, credit card data. And you can get a lot of insight from ours. And everyone told me, I have card data. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is not... Their, their definition of card data is their own card data. So they have their POS systems and their own... every, And so they have access to all that. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I have, I have everyone, once they leave the store, I have all their spending on that side. Like, it was like, we had to figure out how do we articulate this without confusing them? But at the same yes. time, you know, in 30... Less than 30, 10 seconds, 5 seconds. Yes. Um, and it's... It is... A little bit of a, maybe I should have prepped more for that. <laughs> um, at the same time, it was a good learning experience though. Like, hey guys, I can tell you what not to do. <laughs> yes, yes. But th that becomes as much as the graphs and present presentation of data is important. Terminology coupled with that is equally important. Yes, yes. good to know for uh, listeners out there, you're going to create an enterprise SaaS. Um, even if it's SMB or even B2C, it's like understand the data and how you present it to customers. I like the, the comment on the sizzle. That is a key factor. I'm going to jump back to the revenues here or the numbers, mm -hmm. I should say. Uh, how long has this company been in business? So we've technically been in business about, gosh, now it's 13 years. Um, wow. We've gone through some pivots, though. And so I'd say the most recent iteration of the business is about three, four years old, where we're monetizing data at an enterprise level. So yeah, we're, I, I call us a 13 year old startup when I, when we, when I do mm -hmm. interviews and we hire people, we're still, uh, we're, we're getting close to profitability, but okay. the, part of the reason we've been around for a long time is we actually were profitable for a good chunk of that 13 year history doing kind of, we used to build data systems for enterprises and then hence transition to actually monetizing the data itself. So that's kind of how we, we're in the similar market and similar space, and our mm -hmm. domain knowledge is very relevant for what we're doing today, what we did in the past. 
Um, but the way the company uh, operates is just very different now. Gotcha. When you say build, were you like a service business, like a, an yeah, agency? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, we So the, what, the way we started the company is... Uh, briefly talked about that idea where we had this B2C app. Um, we quickly pivoted. And to be honest, it was it, it was not so much a, we failed at the app and pivoted. It was it was more, we, we did some very, very deep analysis on the cost of customer acquisition of B2C. And what we hypothesized was a critical mass and scale and how much money it would take to get to. You know, I think we had on our little rewards app online, we had like 60,000 to 100,000 users. They're all free. So it's easy to get people to sign up for something for free. Not easy. You'd have to pay for the marketing on the, sure, on the lead gen. Sure. But we quickly realized just literally talking to customers, we were trying to, well, essentially we were trying to sell ad space on our app where McDonald's could target Burger King customers. And I could assure them based on transaction data, they had not shopped at McDonald's for the past six weeks. And so it was supposedly like a very good value prop. And Really, everybody we talked to said, when you get to maybe 5 million customers, then I'll be interested. But 100,000 is just too small for me to pay attention sure. to this. And I was like, okay, that's fair. And then, like I said, we did a we did a very deep analysis on cost of customer acquisition and what it would take to get to 5 million users. And we're like, and, you know, a time horizon of X. Yeah. And we're like, wow, that's a lot of money really fast. And, you know, that was kind of some napkin math. It's not, mm -hmm. a lot of things can happen in between that <laughs> change that. For good or for bad in situations like that you're conservative and um sorry i didn't mean to be long-winded on this but what this we ended okay. up doing was the tech we built for the reward app was essentially 80 percent of it was really good at analyzing consumer transaction data the app part for the rewards is a very small piece of the tech because we had to go through banking systems and understanding uh, all the transaction data and managing that data. So we essentially pivoted that part of the tech into what you call like a, a B2B service business. And mm. if for listeners out there that don't know this, the US banking systems are still being run on uh, very old 80s mainframes. And so when we started kind of doing some biz dev work on discovering that, we realized, oh, we have something that could modernize a lot of these systems. And that became kind of the pivot point where it was a service business and we'd go to banks and processors. We wouldn't actually replace things mainly because it was really scary for people to say, well, if your system goes down, people might not have access to their money. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that's, we don't want to do that either. But what we did pitch them was if you let us, if you extract the data out of the mainframes into a, a modern data architecture, you can extract a lot of value understanding customers, putting like AI tech on top of it. Um, AI back then was really honestly just math. Um, mm -hmm. statistics, algorithms, and you could analyze that on modern cloud architecture that you couldn't do on these 80s mainframes. And so they could do more interesting things. The, the classic example I always tell people was a lot of banks, they'd have like seasonal marketing. So like in the spring, they would market new cars and auto loans and mortgages in the summer. And that's when school's out. It was very seasonal, which, you know, makes some sense, but really it was like, you could be a lot more targeted and personalized. And so the example was like, you can, if you analyze, let's say, Sean's transaction data, and we see, oh, Sean has an increase in auto repair bills in October. And it seems to be like every month he's spending five, $600 on these auto repairs. Maybe he's actually a better target for an auto loan than waiting till springtime. Right. Um, because he might be, yeah. So the, essentially, once you extract it, 
data out of the mainframes and into modern architecture, like these are like SQL systems essentially mm -hmm. in the cloud, then you can put that type of intelligence. So we built these out for um, a lot of banks and processors. And that was essentially, like I said, our profitable period where we were doing this as a service. Right. I could see that. And then you kind of transition to the data as a service. Do you still have the service arm of your business still in operations? No, we sunsetted that. When I say sunset, we sold it all off to the actual Got customers. Um, probably, I want to say two years ago was the last like bits of services. We we, we essentially, we, we built systems and then we sold service contracts on top of the system. Got that it. was kind of what we did. Um, and then just transitioned off that a few years ago. Sure. But like I said, we're working with the same data now monetizing transaction data. So our domain knowledge is extremely high in the industry as far as understanding and working with transaction data. Right. It's not that easy to work with. That's, I guess, what I'm saying. You just took raw banking mm -hmm. data. Anybody, no one could just like make sense. Sure. So that so gave us a little edge. You as a business, your your team, um, when I say you, was like, hey, we can continue this route where we you know, provide a service and then we sell contracts with the service, or we can look at a more scalable model, look at SaaS, but call it data as a service, which is kind mm -hmm. of its own segment. So that's the decision you made. Like, let's look at something that's much more scalable. We're going mm -hmm. to the moon. That's why we're looking at a data as a service play. You you sound like one of our investors. Um, <laughs> they're like, yeah, this, this service business is great. You guys are profitable. It's like, you know, where's the multiple? Where's the exit strategy? Yes. Where's this? And you, you hit it right on the head as far as the decision. I'd say what made it a little easier was we actually did have some, it actually started in the investment space. We had some companies, hedge funds and companies servicing hedge funds mm -hmm. approach us about, hey, we heard you guys have transaction data. We'd be interested in buying it. And cool. at the time, the data rights and the contracts, we weren't allowed to, but that did kind of essentially pique the interest and allowed us to explore and analyze that segment to your point and just say, hey, this could this is actually a growing segment. Year over year is growing quite large. It's much more, like you said, a SaaS, DAS type of business where you rinse and repeat, you can scale up faster, contracts are big, demand is growing. Um, so that allowed us to look there. So I would say it wasn't just coming out thin air. We did get some, we did mm -hmm. get some luck and some people approached us about buying our data already. That that's the beautiful thing is when you have a customer out there that kind of approaches you with an idea of, mm -hmm. hey, could it do this? You want to totally be open-minded to that conversation because your business could pivot in a pretty scalable direction. It sounds like that's what totally. happened to you guys. Totally. Uh, that's actually, I'd say a piece of advice. Always take calls that might sound a little weird like that. Um, it's very little opportunity cost to take the call and um, trying to understand what people are trying, uh, what, what what people are wanting to yep. do, and it it definitely helped. That was one hundred percent something that gave us that little boost in that direction. Yes, yes. Instead of like, I see a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to force like a, a round object into a square hole, and it's like it's not going to work. Great analogy, you, right? You you need people coming to you with a problem, and then hey, we just happen to be able to solve that problem if we just mm -hmm. do this little tweak here or that a little tweak there so mm -hmm. there you go mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I love the segue here we jumped away from the numbers i want to jump back to that sure sorry your usual <laughs> no this is great context on the evolution of your model um so 13 years in business what do you recall how many years it took to break a million in arr probably three or four i'd say three, three or four, or four years. years is when we kind of probably got yeah so two yeah yeah about probably year three four because we did kind of like i said we went through a 
essentially a, we were doing free stuff for mm-hmm. 100,000 customers for the first two something years. Once we got into the service business and building the data systems, those are big contracts, yeah. Um, yeah. relatively large. Awesome. Landing those contracts, that was probably, those were those were very long sales cycles. But uh, yeah, those those became multi-year deals though, which actually did help. So I'd say, yeah, probably around, around year three, three and a half is when we got there. Three, four years in revenue uh, to get to a million in revenue. Okay. And then 2022, do you recall what your revenue was? Uh, we were in kind of the eight to 10 range there. Eight to so, 10 million. Okay. Yeah. In ARR. Yeah. Nice. And then 2023 projected. We're hoping to double our 2022. So 16 to 20. Hey, nice it's work. Been a, it's been a good year uh, from a data launching perspective. Uh, we brought on a new data partner that's been extremely good data set and that's that's another thing that's actually pretty interesting about das versus sas um Mm -hmm. your raw materials your source data really has a lot of influence on how successful you can be which makes sense if you think Mm -hmm. about like if you only had california data there's a limited use case if you have all of the us it's great if you had the whole world it's even better right so um acquiring data contracts is just as important as selling your data and building your products you can't just build, like in SaaS, you can build your product and build features and you have a, probably a Jira board of what you add and don't add. Sure. Where in data, a lot, a lot of times you you kind of win at the beginning on your raw materials. You still sure. have to execute everything else. But what I said earlier, you can't just fabricate data. So if your data doesn't have that much utility, you're not going to really translate that into a lot of sales either. Totally. Um, expansion revenue what does that look like as far as a percentage year over year? Do you know over the last year or two? Um, that's a it's a tough one for me to probably pinpoint, to be honest. Um, okay. We do have, I mean, that does exist. And that's definitely part of our growth strategy. I couldn't off the top of my head tell you the number, but I could at least explain how it works in our world, like why what expansion revenue looks like, at least mm-hmm. in both markets. So like I was saying earlier in the retail market, Starbucks, we might need to get one department, let's just say like their market intelligence department. Yep. Then the marketing department, maybe the real estate department, they eventually start buying rights to the data so that they can use it within their ecosystems. And landing expanding is always a much easier than trying to sell them individually. And then what's really interesting in the hedge fund world, I don't know how much of listeners understand how a lot of hedge funds work, but many of the very large hedge funds, let's just say like Millennium or Citadel, they're actually broken up into what they call pod structures, where essentially it's one big hedge fund broken up into like 50 mini hedge funds. Um, Mm -hmm. And the mini hedge funds technically are actually not allowed to talk or collaborate because they don't want people to, like the idea is that they all have 50 different strategies and some smart guy picking stocks on this one strategy. And if they collaborate too much, they actually might converge into similar strategies or like strategies and the idea is diversify just like everyone in our own personal finance everyone says diversify hedge funds do the same thing with uh what they call different portfolio managers so 50 different pods within one hedge fund usually when we sell our data to a hedge fund it's a handful of pods that are interested in the data so each year more and more get turned on got it let's take a quick commercial break do you feel like stock investing is too confusing too time consuming or too risky it doesn't have to be. 
If you ever considered investing on your own, but you don't know where to start, I welcome you to check out Ticker. Ticker guides you through your investment journey by steering you towards safe investments and away from risky investments. There were two main reasons why I created Ticker. Number one, I wanted to remove emotions from investing. In other words, I wanted a software to make buying and selling decisions for me so I don't have to. And number two, I wanted to save time. Analyzing stocks can take hours, if not days, and I didn't want to spend all day looking at the computer. I have other hobbies in life I'd rather be enjoying. If you're interested, you can get started with a free trial. Visit ticker.com. That's T-Y-K-R.com. Again, ticker.com. And is it, do you charge based on like data usage, kind of like um, you think of like AWS or Azure, it's based on usage or is it seats, like amount of users? It's, it's, it's actually, it's kind of this weird, it's actually more like seats, to be honest. Um, okay. It is more like seats. So what we do for like these, like I said, these we call them pod shops, but there's like a license per pod. And what's actually nice is it's a self-regulated type of thing where they can get in a lot of trouble if they're with the SEC if they're trading using data that they're not supposed to use. So they're disincented to cheat. So if I even though I'm give, I'm like I have a data pipe set up for let's say one of the big hedge funds, let's say Citadel, technically I have no control if they wanted to share the data with all 50 pods. And I can't really police that at all because the data is on their side of the fence. But what's nice is from a regulatory perspective, they're very disincented to do that because they can get a lot of trouble. So we kind of have that trust barrier where they have to buy additional seat licenses for each one and they're all priced out. And actually the pricing that I quoted you were actually, like I said, it it varies between, and sometimes we do like an enterprise deal. That's the seven figure deals. We're like, all right, you want economies of scale. We want a large contract. You want to turn everyone on. We'll build that in. Those are like the seven figure deals. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and how many employees at the company? Uh, we're, I think, I want to say we just finally hit 30. So nice. Um, still pretty small. Still know everyone's name. That's good. It's good. Yeah. You're in a good spot. 30 employees that estimated or projected 16 million in revenue. Uh, looks like you're about to be profitable. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Pretty exciting. Um, how much have you raised to date? Um, we, I want to say we just closed a, I think we technically called it a series B Sounds right. last year. Um, up to, to date, I want to say we raised probably 15 million. Okay. It, nice. Around there. I think that's probably a ballpark, but yeah, it's mm-hmm. close. Sitting in your series B that's, yeah, that, that sounds right. Based on some of the other, uh, guests I've had on that have SaaS businesses, but, uh, that's, that's great. You guys are in a really healthy spot. Good to see you're expanding. Um, before we jump to the rapid fire round, what is one key takeaway you can give to somebody who's an uh, aspiring entrepreneur that wants to create an enterprise SaaS business? Hmm. So I would say, I think one of the things that have benefited me in my career and being where I am today has always been um, immerse yourself in other knowledge. I, I'd say when I say other knowledge, um, being being an expert in what you do in your industry is really important. But entrepreneurs, we we literally solve problems that people don't know exist yet. And in order to do that, you have to have knowledge outside of your own domain to really help solve the problems. It sounds really vague, but like for me, when we started the company as like this B2C application, uh, trying to give people reward points, I had no idea how banking technology worked in the whole industry. And it was only until diving into all the essentially 
inefficiencies in that market that we could see kind of the forest from the trees and where the opportunity was in the initial pivot, which was, oh, we these people don't have, the US is this amazing technology country, but the banking system is actually extremely lagging. And the reason there's less innovation in the banking sectors and why other countries are growing faster is because the systems are so old. And how can we approach that? And like I said, you don't learn that in school. You don't really learn that on the job either when we were doing what we were doing. It was more just having that ability to educate self-educate and motivate and learn and read um, and research. So I think that's like really important to kind of think outside of your own domain. Not I wouldn't say outside the box. And it's not even about trying to find an idea. It's just learn about industries and things. That's, I think, really, really important. That advice is actually very much in line with Ray Dalio. He mm-hmm. owns the largest hedge fund in the world. Mm-hmm. He actually does not hire anybody who has went to school for economics or finance. Finance. The, he likes yeah. to hire art students or teachers mm-hmm. or I shouldn't say somebody in the trade, maybe somebody in the trades, but somebody mm-hmm. who has that ability to switch gears from one industry to the next and quickly understand and learn things on their own. And at the same time, have some creative as well as critical thinking that is a more valuable employee in his eyes than somebody that's like, I only mm-hmm. went to school for finance. I only want to have a career totally. in finance. It's, yeah. Cause you're silo critical thinking. That's yeah. a great, that's a, that's a, that's a huge skill. And another example I've seen um, two Sigma, a good friend of mine works there. They're one of the largest systematic hedge funds, which really just means they use a lot of AI to do the trading for them. Um, they train a model, but they hire actually a lot of PhDs in non-finance or non-economics, mm-hmm. not even statistics. A lot of them are like physics or uh, natural sciences. And from what I've heard, some of the stuff they do in the lab is like, well, markets like stocks and traders are operating kind of like these evolutionary animals back in the day when things were fighting and competing for resources in the world. And so they have like these biology and physics, like PhDs applying a lot of the algorithms that they use kind of to discover things in like the rainforest to try to apply to like capital markets. Um, I have no idea how it works or if it does work, but their fund is really successful from what I understand. But exactly what you're saying, like different disciplines have a lot of value in cross-pollinating with what you do. So yeah, definitely I'd say always read outside the box or research, maybe not think, but keep your skills sharp within what you're doing. But having more knowledge is always better. Yes. Yes. I love it. All right. Let's jump into the rapid fire round. This is the part of the episode where we get to find out who Jonathan really is. (laughs) (laughs) All right. If you can try to answer each question in about 15 seconds or less. You ready? I'll give it a shot. Yeah. All right. What is your favorite podcast? Well, besides this podcast, um, (laughs) Payback, um, I'd say Radiolab. I'm a big okay. fan. And podcasts are a great way to consume what we were just talking about, knowledge about other things. Um, and I do have a small commute to work, so it's a great time. But I'm, I, I've enjoyed Radiolab for many years. And I think like the way they do their documentary style, deep dives into industries I'd know nothing about or disciplines um, is really fun to kind of also take your mind off work, but also continue to yeah. connect things in your brain. It's uh, It's in my list, actually. I have listened to that show before. Good one. All right. What is a recent book you read and would recommend? Read and recommend. Oh, um, Bad Blood was good. I know it's a little bit uh, older and not new, new, but that was good. That was a great, I'd I'd say for entrepreneurs like us, it's kind of an interesting 
way to really see how a VC industry can really just snowball into good or bad things, but uh, a good insight into just the, in, like what happened and how that happened. Um, mm-hmm. The modern kind of Enron type of stuff. Like That is actually one of my favorite books I've read in the last five years. I love oh, okay. that. I, um, this, for the listeners out there, it's on the story of uh, Theranos. Yep, and Theranos, that whole yep. debacle. Elizabeth I, Holmes, yep. Yep, I'm gravitated towards kind of like big lessons learned in mm-hmm. the tech industry. I just finished the docu-series on Netflix, Super Pumped on Uber, with Joseph Gordon Lovitz playing oh. uh, Travis Kalanick. Just, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. was playing trap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Love, love learning about good? the train wreck. It was very good. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Yeah. And yeah. of course, what is it? The founder or the inventor, yeah. I think is the, the name. Found, on, the McDonald's one? With um, uh, the founder. Michael yes. Michael Keaton. That was great. I actually love yeah. that one too. Um, yeah. I know that's based on a book. I just haven't read that one. But the movie yeah. was, or that, that yeah. dramatized movie was really good. Um, yeah. I do think the interesting lessons I've seen in just, Bad Blood or Theranos, Uber and uh, Uber Lyft and Airbnb. I, I actually sometimes when I talk to my family about entrepreneurship, it's it's interesting as entrepreneurs, sometimes there's opportunities on these like fringes of legality, which realistically, sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Like in a way, Uber, the application and as a consumer is a great idea. But realistically, like it was illegal to run a non-licensed taxi service in mm-hmm. most major cities in the US or Europe. So like the very, very beginning, you're not supposed to do that. And the tech involved was super cool. You could punch it in, start end destination, driver knows where to pick you up with because the phones and they can just, they don't even need to know where you're going. They just follow the line. Great idea, cool, cool way to revolutionize the industry. But you know that opportunity kind of came on the fringes of legality, which is... Just kind of an interesting risk profile on as an entrepreneur. Like, I don't know how you as I don't do anything outside outside of any legal bounds at our company, but it is an interesting like Airbnb, same thing too, right? There's a lot of you're not supposed to rent your apartment out to random people if you're in a building, but that opportunity also came out. Uh, and so I think it's kind of an interesting fringe case that at some point that'd be a good deep dive into like how how do you figure out if you should or should not dive in when you know, like it's actually illegal, but I think we can get over that legal boundary yes. at some point and then become super profitable. And I don't know what that pitch looks like. <laughs> if, you know, there's, there's wisdom there. Like the path less traveled is where the biggest rewards can really happen. So if you're kind of flirting with that, okay, we're on the fence here between legal and illegal, and you really want to disrupt something, you have to go to that. You have to be willing to go to that edge. Totally. And mm-hmm. most people will not take that journey. So mm-hmm. it's those I know we're talking about Spotify for the show. Yes, that's that's right. an example. Fighting the, another great the big one. players mm-hmm. out there. It's like, do most people are sitting back and like, nope, I'm not, I'm not fighting that battle. Right. I'm gonna go create right. something else. And then you get the guys like Daniel Ack that are like, Yeah, I'm gonna push this. And you know, that's actually a better example of probably where an entrepreneur can do something that was less about legal and more about business rights. Yeah. Like it wasn't like actually mm-hmm. illegal from like a, like a common law perspective or constitutional perspective, mm-hmm. but it was like, okay, you're violating potentially business contracts or pushing those boundaries. Uh, whereas like Uber and Airbnb where it's like, no, there's actually like laws, laws. and licenses and yeah. Yeah, like real like stuff, which yeah, just 
those are all interesting. Same with like Theranos, where they were just like Ooh. pushing those boundaries pretty bad. I I can get behind them all except for Theranos. Like getting into yeah. when it's when it's human when it's human yeah. lives Medical. involved. I'm yeah. like uh uh-uh. uh like mm. music. Totally agree. I can I can touch that real estate. I would maybe yeah. go there. Nobody's dying <laughs> like from those that, from that perspective. Right? No, I totally agree. I totally agree. Yes. Yes, exactly. I know we took more than 15 seconds, but I really Sorry about that. That that discussion was great. Loved it. Um, All right. Let's get into the movie question here. What is your favorite movie? I think it's it's a cross between I and this is just because I loved it when I was young and I think it stayed is The Rock with, uh, you know, Nick Connery and Sean Connery. Oh, my God. I love that movie. And that's my like probably cheesy nineties action movie, but love it. And then Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. I don't know if anyone's seen that. Yeah, that's Robert Downey Jr. Amazing. Shane amazing. Black. Oh, yeah. directed. Yeah, so good. And I'm a huge. <laughs> I love noir, and I like got into noir fiction in college. So uh, a lot of read a lot of Raymond Chandler, and then Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was like this perfect mix of like noir comedy and Hollywood. It was like super cool. Mm-hmm. I we won't spend too much longer here. I just read Age of Cage. It's on the movie history of Nicolas Cage. Any Nick Cage fans out there, pick up that book. It is the nostalgia from the beginning of his career all the way to the present, even touching on uh, one of the latest comedy films he did, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Yes. Yes. That was hilarious. (laughs) It was it's so good, but he touches on the rock and con air and face off like the the like anybody out there grew up around like I was born in the early 80s. So anything Nick Cage. Like, yes. Totally. Yep, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. So, yeah, good, good. Love your choices there. All right. So, we get a few more questions here. What is the worst advice you ever received? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say, uh, unfortunately, I think that it, it comes from probably my family in general, but like it was just definitely pick something stable and you can have fun outside of work, but you got to have, you got to do something stable to, make money it was i I feel like my my parents immigrated from hong kong and my same with the most my extended family i'd say that was like a you know it's a pretty normal immigrant type of mentality to come and just stabilize life but i i and i think where i'd say it's the worst advice is i think separating like honestly with a wall um your work life and your social and like i guess fun life i think is a lot of it's a mistake a lot of people i I, this is me personally i don't you know, not telling anyone to subscribe to what I believe in, but I personally think there's a lot more, you can mesh and blur those lines a lot more in life. And yes, work-life balance is a super important concept for mental health and mental health is an important part of work life, but you can make lifelong friends at work. You can have great relationships through work. And I think denying that and separating those two. So, so in silos is uh, kind of a mistake, especially um, in today's age where, work is such a big part of your life. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Flip that equation. What is the best advice you ever received? The best advice I've ever received. Um, that's probably also from my parents. My dad definitely always told me to, in, in his own way, tell me to be humble. And it's, you're never the smartest guy in the room. But growing up playing sports, he was always like, there's always someone better. So don't try to think, don't try to become the best, just put in your work, do the best you can, but trying to like essentially mentally pushing yourself down when someone, there are always going to be smarter people. There's always going to be someone faster than you and jump higher than you in sports. And that's just reality of life. And that's okay. 
essentially it's okay. Be humble, but also be confident in what you can and what you, your abilities and don't essentially, you don't need to, uh, you don't need to worry about not being the best because being the best mm-hmm. is really hard and you don't have to be the best to be successful. I remember um, so, yeah. a coach, I, I used to be a competitive swimmer and a coach once told me, he's oh, like, there's so. always somebody better. You could be the best guy at this particular event mm-hmm. on this day at this meet, but there's always somebody better. Keep that in mind. And I will always remember that because it that's, applies to life. That's literally what my dad used to tell me. There's yeah. always someone better. There's always someone better, but it was like, don't worry. It wasn't in a, you suck. It was more like, it's okay. It's just perspective and, hum- yeah. and humility. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's this mm-hmm. underlying tone of wisdom there on humility. It's great. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you swim? Were you a sprinter? hundred meters? Or I was, long? I was a backstroker and flyer. Uh, hundreds, Good core. Hundred. Good core. <laughs> I love the dolphin. Like for the listeners out there, I was the Are guy you? that really loved the underwater work. But as soon as you put me in the surface, that's when the real swimmers would run me down. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question here is the time machine question. If you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit and what would you say? Um, I'd say uh, it was probably I'd probably visit my uh, my college years and uh probably just in that window and i think uh i would take essentially some of my own advice that i just gave on this podcast which is um like read and research outside the box and not get too consumed with essentially what i was doing in my major um and really college is a great opportunity to explore many things uh in life and different subjects and different expertise i think i i wish i did more of that and although i think i've got a pretty well-rounded probably mind now, you know, I, I do think I spent a little too much time obsessing over my economics sure. and my accounting stuff in school and probably could have enjoyed a lot more other subjects. Like I said, from a learning perspective, and sure. college was a fun time. Everyone, had, I'm sure had a, most people had good experiences there. I had a good time. It's just, I think that opportunity doesn't come essentially twice in life where you're essentially a professional student and, you know, being able to read and learn from professors that are experts in their field great opportunity to kind of explore different things. Nice. Great advice. Love it. All right. And where can the audience reach you? Um, so they can reach me either on LinkedIn. Um, so Jonathan Chin, co-founder of Factius. I don't think I'm the first result, unfortunately. There's a lot of Jonathan Chins out there. Um, I'm still bummed about that, but uh, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, I think my, my profile picture needs an update because I had my COVID hair, which was down at my shoulders. And also, uh, yeah, so LinkedIn or my name, Jonathan.chin, C-H-I-N, like the chin, at factius.com is my email. So anybody interested in talking shop or want to learn more about data, please hit me up. Awesome. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Sean. It was really great. Bye. All right. We'll see ya. Hey, I'd like to say thank you for checking out this podcast. I know there's a lot of other podcasts out there you could be listening to. So thanks for spending some time with me. And if you have a moment, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. The more reviews we get, especially five-star reviews, the higher this podcast will rank in Apple. So thanks for doing that. And remember, this show is for entertainment purposes only. If you heard any stocks mentioned on this podcast, please do not buy or sell those stocks based solely on what you hear. All right. Thanks for your time. We'll see ya.